Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I want to bring in Marvin Barth now, Barclays head of FX and EM macro strategy. Marvin, you're calling the dollar the beast. It's still the beast, but it can't get much stronger. Why? Well, it's already uh, relatively overvalued if you look at it on a long-term historical basis. Um, but, uh, you know, we do expect it to continue to trade at these high levels. And that's actually quite unusual. If you look back historically, when the dollar's been to its peaks, it's gone to these, you know, peaks in the 85 in, in uh, 2002, and then it comes off quite hard. That isn't what we're seeing this time. And part of that's because of exactly what you've been talking about here, that where are you going to go to access growth in the world? It's really about the U.S., but it's also the place that you go to access safety. So you get the best of both worlds. So people are going to maintain over-allocation of U.S. assets for the foreseeable future. Marvin, when do deficits start to matter again? Well, uh, I think we're getting to the point where they do matter, and I think it's more a question of the debt, not so much um, uh, the, the deficits. Let's remember that deficits are, are taking place pretty much everywhere, um, so it's not just a U.S. issue. Um, what we're confronting right now is a very different situation from the past, or certainly the last decade, where countries were bailed out by falling real interest rates. Now, you're not going to see falling real interest rates. We're at this zero lower bound or effective lower bound for most countries on nominal rates. And the only way to get real rates to fall from there is to hyperinflation. So, Marvin, with your dollar resiliency, do you assume then that the real yield doesn't claw its way back to zero, that we stay with a persistent negative real yield? So ultimately, we should expect that real yields will start to to, to pick up. Um, you know, we will see um, uh, Treasury yields start uh, to pick up over the course of the next few years gradually. Um, markets have already priced in a significant amount of the inflation that we expect. There's still room for that to go to get to the Fed's comfort zone in terms of where break-evens uh, go. But um, we will see a rise in real yields, but it's not going to be anything um, like what we've seen in the past. But remember, that just makes, um, to Lisa's point, the debt problems uh, more uh, pressing for countries around the world. And John, what's so important here, the cadence of Marvin Barth at Barclays is the same cadence as Chairman Powell. The real note yesterday with Chairman Powell was his x-axis. Chairman Powell's timeline yeah. extends well out into 2022, and that's what I'm hearing from Marvin Barth. The Fed is totally committed to this, Marvin, totally committed to this, and Chairman Powell won't blink. Do you think everybody gets that now? Well, look, I think people get that, and that's why we've had this pause in bond mar markets um, over the course of the last month, month or so, right? Remember, we had a very intense sell-off in the first quarter, a lot of volatility associated. And since then, bond yields, you pointed out, they've gone up a lot this week, but we're still basically trading within the same range we've traded for yep. the last month or so. They're not really going anywhere. That is the market accepting that. And now the next step is they need to see, well, is the economy going to be stronger than Chair Powell and the committee expect? Or is it going to be in line with theirs? Or is there going to be some sort of disaster that's, that's going to take it down? And for that, we're just going to have to wait for the data. And that's why we're range trading across asset markets right now. 
Marvin, it's always good to see you. Great to catch up. Marvin Barth there, Barclays Head of FX and EM Macro Strategy. David Kelly with us with J.P. Morgan. And David Kelly, I'm going to go to the bottom of this first look at GDP. And the nominal GDP statistic is 10.7% with a big prices paid statistic. Does that signal to you an inflation that is here or an inflation that's going to come? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I think there is clearly inflation right now. You can see it in things like lumber prices, which don't feed through that much. Uh, but you can also see in, in the difficulty that businesses are having in hiring workers. They're going to have to pay up in terms of higher wages. Uh, I think uh, we've got bottlenecks all over the place. Uh, I think you know light vehicle sales are pretty strong, uh, but the inventories are very low, and that, uh, that is pushing prices up. So I think we're seeing that right now. And in fact, one other thing in this report, when you actually look at the numbers, that's really interesting is inventories fell at an $86 billion annual pace in the first quarter. So if you think it's hard to find stuff, you're right. But what that's going to do is it's going to cause manufacturing to crank up in the rest of this year. So I think you're going to see um, as inventories are, are restored over the course of this year, it's just going to add further um, oomph to this economy. Uh, we had a, a savings rate over 20% in the first quarter. That's more fuel. So I can see this economy really geared up to boom in the second quarter. I think we'll get better than 10% growth annualized in the second quarter. Can these companies meet that demand? David, the money question. Are there still reason to be bullish this equity market? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, but uh, I think you've got to got to focus on the cyclical sectors, the value sectors. I think they should they should do very well because this economy is going to accelerate fast here. I don't think interest rates are going to stay at this level. I think they have to go up with the pace of acceleration that we're likely to see over the next few quarters. How do you look at the data, David, given the fact that people don't seem to trade off of it? What data are you looking at to determine whether this is something more than transitory, whether these price pressures have legs? Uh, well, you you almost have to have a new model of inflation. I mean, the the the, the problem is that the old rules in terms of exactly you know the Phillips curve and the relationship between money supply and inflation they don't really work very well. So you it, it is it's a complicated process, but you have to put together the pieces of it. And I think the wage part of it's very important, um, and also the fiscal part. You know, you, the, President Biden announced a lot of plans yesterday. If he gets that through Congress, you know, usually it's uh, spending now, taxes later. Um, and so I think you get more fiscal stimulus. And if you get that stimulus, you will, I think, have some inflation that sticks. And the really interesting point about this is, you know, the Federal Reserve says, well, it's probably transitory. But by the time they know whether it's transitory or not, we're in the middle of next year. So the question is, how long can you wait to, to be sure that it's transitory? That was a hat trick of transitories. That was very good, Dr. <laughs> You're getting drunk, TK. He's killing it. David Kelly, I, it was very transitory of, of you to come on and give us wisdom out to the third quarter or fourth quarter. With what we've seen in the last, say, week or even five days, do you have any clarity past Labor Day of this year? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we can see we can see the GDP story. I mean, this thing is just going to keep on accelerating. We've, we know we've got the fuel, and we also know that we've got people, uh, you know, anxious to get back to to doing normal things. And you know, I think the fourth quarter of this year is the first quarter that's going to feel in any way normal. And I expect it to be a very blockbuster quarter in terms of economic activity. I think the holiday season will be huge. Um, but you know, the, I think things get much more murky when you get into 2022. Does David Kelly have to go back to the office soon? Is that July? Is that July line in the sand for you, David? 
Uh, I'm uh, well. My second vaccine, I guess, on May eighth. Two weeks later, I intend to go down to New York. There we go. We look forward to seeing you too. Hopefully, you can come back into the studio one day. I'd love to do that. Let's at do some that. point in the next, I don't know, several years. David Kelly, <laughs> JP Morgan Asset Management wow. Chief, Global Strategist. Right now, Henrietta Trace joins us, Veda Partners, here on the uh, soiree in Washington uh, last night. Henrietta, I want you to explain in the white marble halls of Washington how politicians line up their tax policy around, as the president mentioned, three-tenths of one percent of taxpayers. Why aren't they more representative of the rest of America? You know, one of the interesting things I hear from senators, and including the moderates like, um, you know, a Joe Manchin, is that they want to tax wealth like they tax work. So they have, I think, a lot of talking points around raising cap gains, around raising taxes on top marginal rates. I think the real question, though, is, you know, what can you f functionally get the votes for? With no margin for error, where can you get those 50 votes in well, the Senate? And you know, I don't, I don't see much movement as realistic. Um, maybe a couple points here and there. Okay, this is really, really important. Dan Balls, esteemed Dan Balls in the Washington Post, talks about the narrowest of majorities. When do we come to our senses that the president can't be bold if we do? Is it within hours, days, or do we have to drag this into July? I mean, honestly, I think that you probably, I mean, most investors should have seen that when, you know, for instance, they couldn't pass the minimum wage hike to 15 votes, uh, excuse me, $15 an hour, and they lost eight votes. I mean, I think July is probably a good time frame for when we'll start to recognize that we're going to be mostly deficit financing the cost of this bill. The um, administration and Democrats generally have been doing a great job of avoiding the conversation around reconciliation and deficit increases that will have to be authorized this bill. And that's because President Biden has rolled out this ambitious agenda to pay for it. So July seems right to me based on what we see from the budget committees. We know that Speaker Pelosi is um, marshalling this bill through the House. and They want to be wrapped up by the 4th of July. I think reconciliation comes right after. Um, September is a possibility. You know, might be this headline risk that looms over us until September. But July, September is my thinking as well. What will the headline number most likely be in September after it gets pushed through the congressional sausage? My expectation is that the cost of this bill, which is currently $4 trillion, a combo of the infrastructure bill and the families plan, gets slashed by at least half. So $2 trillion is the maximum sticker shock spending number that those moderates in the Senate can stomach. So the spend alone is going to come down by half. And that means the revenues needed to offset the costs are going to come down by at least half. And we haven't even started, about, started talking about the deficit hike. So the, the real question is going to be, when do we see the spending level? Um, my expectation is that doesn't get discovered in earnest until the Senate starts to consider this bill, which will be July, late July specifically. And then um, the deficit hike number, again, will be the other key input point to see how much revenue we need. So all this is going to just effectively wait till July. You can skip over the next couple months. The House will pass a big bill that maybe is $3, 4000000000000 trillion, and then we can forget about that as soon as we get over to the Senate. Henrietta, if you look at equity trading, you can see that a lot of people don't believe that corporate taxes will be raised all that much. What do you think they will be looking at in September? Will it be higher than they expect or will there be more enforcement of loopholes and just getting the actual taxes that they're charging? 
A great point. I mean, that enforcement mechanism, when you start hearing lawmakers talk about enforcement and collecting taxes that are due by beefing up uh, the, the funding for the IRS, that should tell you all you need to know, which is we're not going to go after new taxes. We're not going to create some new tax stream. We're going to go after the ones we've already collected, try to boost you know, fraud, waste, and abuse, and, and, and call some earnings from that. Um, I think what investors are stuck in right now is this um, mentality that whatever the president says goes. So they hear, you know, a 39.6% capital gains tax rate, and that's what they go to. And then you see a couple of advisors say, you know, maybe 28. Well, imagine if the number is 23, 24%. I think that's where we ultimately end up, but people aren't using their imagination effectively enough yet. The same with corporate rates. It doesn't have to be 28%. It doesn't even have to be 25%. It could easily be 24, 23%. And that's what the business community is pushing right now. You know, we can handle a point or two. Don't take us all the way to 28 and possibly don't take us all the way to 25. And those are options, and I think the street will respond pretty favorably based off of what current expectations are, which still can be really high if you're on the phone with folks. I agree. The market's not pricing it in, but when you're on the phone with people talking about where tax rates are going to go, they're surprised at our thesis that taxes will not rise that much. Henrietta, just quickly, it wouldn't be the first time that we've had a week where we're drowning in fiscal news in America and we miss the foreign policy story that creeps up on us. What are we missing right now outside of America, outside of domestic fiscal policy? Man, John, I thought the part of the speech last night that was most compelling was the China-facing component. Um, the U.S.-China relationship is one that I think is going to be paramount in the back three years of the Biden administration. They're not going to pass any more legislation after this bill, most likely, except for a China-facing component. So U.S.-China relationships, that means everything from export control restrictions beefing up to domestic subsidization of manufacturing in the high-tech sectors, um, you know, monitoring the South China Sea, dealing with Taiwan, um, dealing with the EU and the UK to sort of combat China on a multilateral basis. That's the future. That's the next three years. Henrietta, great to catch up. Henrietta Trace there of Vader Partners. Thank you. The Caterpillar CFO saying that they may not meet their 2021 end-user demand due to a chip shortage. You saw this in Apple as they knock off 3 to $4 billion of quarterly revenue because of a chip shortage holding back sales of the Mac and the iPad. You saw this from Ford, cutting production by 50%, planned production by 50% in the second quarter. I want to bring in a man who knows this business far better than us, Pierre Farragut, the New Street Research Head of Technology Infrastructure. Pierre, let's just start right there. What's happening at the moment and why is this hitting some companies more than others? Okay. So on what's happening at the moment, let's re rewind back to a year ago. A year ago, the world came to a stop. Everything stopped. And then, you know, guys working in the supply chain, at, like in, uh, in, uh, in foundries, uh, at chip manufacturers, like buyers, uh, uh, planning for orders, they all went a very cautious road. And then at that point in time, the world split in two. You, ha you had players more in the tech space who were thinking, we have very important turns to take, like the cloud <laughs> term, the 5G term. And we don't want that situation, that temporary situation to stop us. So they kept ordering like there is no tomorrow. And then you have people who are more defensive, like the auto industry, like uh, industrial supply chains that were really scared about cash burn and like getting into trouble uh, in such like a, uh, mm -hmm. a significant downturn. And they, got, they became very, very cautious. Then right after that, what happened? The world remained relatively slow, which is not great. Uh, for many people, for like restaurants and things like that. But people staying at home, like white collar kept getting paid. 
blue collars or like, you know, like a service jobs got compensated with government right. money, with stimulus money, and a lot of money kept flowing into demand. You looked at the results of Apple yesterday. That was a massive, massive bit. Like okay. iPhone sales are up 65% year on year. So demand is far outstripping the cautious supply planning that was made okay, so last summer. Okay, so Pierre, beautifully explained. You are definitive on this out of Bernstein years ago. What is the Farragut timeline to where the logistics mess clears? So unfortunately, the core of the logistics mess is what we call lagging edge. Uh, uh, logic uh, chips. So that's the chips manufactured by uh, global foundries, by TSMC, by UMC. And the lead time to put out a new fab and have it up and running is at best in ideal conditions, 18 months. And you should be more like thinking, you know, um, le, le, uh, le, like the, le, even six more months like that, like 24 months or, or, or a bit more. So we're going to hear about chip supply for the next couple of years. Um, and in terms of who gets, gets impacted the most and things like that, it's, it's going to be very difficult to call because one chip missing on a motherboard, you can't ship your iPad. One chip missing in your car, you can't manufacture your car. Uh, so it's going to be very random, you know, who gets hit, who doesn't get hit. But of course, if you are like uh, uh, an Apple, right. uh, you're better positioned because you've been preparing for that better because you were working on your 5G transition than others, taking way more precautions in terms of supply than a car manufacturer just being focused on managing the downturn. Pierre, this is exactly where I wanted to go. Execution risk, as John was talking about earlier. How much is this something that corporate executives can get ahead of at this point? What are you looking for to hear from corporate executives that they are going to do about it? Um, so, you know, it's going to be very difficult to get granular details about what they're going to, to be able to, to do about it. The CFO of Ford, you know, you know, cannot really have his own hand on a plan to secure like uh, alternative supply for a very minor chip uh, in their car. So um, the, it, it, it's going to be very difficult to, to be able to do something about it. I think what you have to do is to mitigate it. Uh, and then another perspective that you have to keep in mind that is very important is that we are in this extreme situation where people braced for a downturn and actually spending increase. But as uh, you know, the world reopened and you, you were talking about New York getting back to normal, people getting back into the, the cities that never sleep and in bars and restaurants, this is actually going to flush down the amount of money going into consumer electronics and potentially even going into the car industry. And so maybe the saving grace in this environment is going to be when demand normalizes. Uh, is Apple going to have like massive quarters as they reported yesterday uh, for the next six months or nine months? Maybe not. Maybe things are going to cool down. And that's actually what's going to, to accelerate the return to normal on the supply uh, side of things. Pierre, really smart, as always, and I look forward to catching up again. I keep meaning to talk to you about Tesla, and then we get distracted by something else. We're going to do that soon, I promise. Pierre Farago there, New Street Research Head of Technology <clears throat> Infrastructure. Joseph Feldman of Telsey Advisory Group has a choice set. He wrote a brilliant note on Amazon 2 maybe three days ago. The ink is barely dry and he probably already has to change the model. Joe Feldman, how do you approach Amazon this afternoon after what you witnessed from Google and Apple? 
Yeah, I think you're going to see some really good results out of Amazon, um, especially fourth quarter has, and the first quarter so far has proven to be quite strong for really all the retailers, anybody selling to the consumer. And Amazon's going to be a big winner of that. I, I think their Amazon AWS business has been strong. Even last night, they just announced a new uh, deal with Disney+. Plus. So they're continuing to be this juggernaut in, in the you know retail and technology and just dominating out there. So I think our our numbers are probably going to go up. I think our models going to have to adjust again tonight after they report. I'm expecting good results. A juggernaut with a target on its back, and we saw it of Apple trying to get ahead of that with a plan to do infrastructure spending in the United States, invest in new plants. Are we going to hear something similar out of Amazon? I think they are. It, you know, you, you, they continue to invest in the future. They're getting closer to the customer with more facilities, um, whether it's distribution or grocery. They're leveraging their technology in the stores. I think we're going to have contact with shopping at a whole new level because of the technology Amazon has. Their distribution capabilities continue to improve. Like I said, the AWS, they're continuing to become more dominant there, and especially with more people working from home, and, and you know that's likely to continue to some extent, that AWS becomes even more important to have things in the cloud. So uh, I think they're going to continue to, to really push and lead the direction for most others uh, in, the, in the consumer space, for sure. There's also a question on the employment space. Um, Amazon coming out today and saying that it was planning to raise uh, wages for a lot of workers. Is it enough, what you've seen so far, 50 cents to $3 an hour for most workers, this idea that Amazon has had so much pressure, including that unionization push? Yeah, I, I think that they have done a, a, a good job, better than most people expect. I think if you look at their average wage, it is pretty strong, um, you know, and it's certainly above the $15 mark. And I think that they've, you know, been very competitive. I hear a lot of retailers talk about needing to compete uh, with Amazon for, for talent, uh, particularly in distribution uh, and even at retail. So I, I think that, you know, Amazon has done a good job. And, you know, people want to work at a company that's growing fast and has uh, a lot of strong prospects ahead. Joe. I'm looking at free cash flow back five years. Here's the numbers, folks. 6, 17, 22, 26, 26 again, and we model out to 52. We've gone from 6 gazillion to 52 gazillion in a long <laughs> cup of coffee. Joe Feldman, when's the dividend? Where's the share buyback? Where's the stock split? When do these guys grow up and become a Dow component? Yeah, it... We're, the stock split is something that seems nearer uh, to us than, than something, you know, the others, the dividend or a buyback. Uh, it, it, you would think that they are on stable enough footing at this point, and they've been able to show profitability quarter after quarter now for several years, that they should be able to start to, to think about redeploying that cash to the shareholder in some, some regard. Um, you know, I get it. You want to hoard some cash and be able to continue to invest and do what they're doing. But um, we're, we're back. We're now in that new territory, a new phase of growth for these, this company, where I, I do agree yeah. that you're going to have to see some of that. Cash, Lisa, 26, 31, 41, 55. They've gone from 26 to 84 gazillion Yeah. in like another long cup of coffee. Which raises a question, Joe, what are they going to buy? <laughs> well, <laughs> they could buy whatever they want, I guess. But, you know, they, they do... 
have a lot of opportunity to grow, I think, uh, their footprint to get closer to the customer. Now, whether that's going to be through distribution facilities or grocery stores, I mean, a lot of our contacts in the real estate community, you know, indicate that that Amazon's been pretty aggressive trying to build out their grocery networks. You know, now, clearly, they have more than enough cash to do that. I don't think they want to buy a retailer, though. I think they'd rather grow it themselves organically. You know, maybe they could get some, you know, leases or, or something. But I, I, it's not clear that that's where they would make an acquisition. Well, I got to say, Joe, when you say that they could buy anyone, sure, they have the cash. But I do wonder the antitrust push in Washington, D.C. Is it just lip service or is that a real threat for Amazon? I mean, you know, look, as big as they are, you know, they've got this big guy in Bentonville that's uh, quite large themselves, and on the retail side of things anyway. You know, and they've got quite a few competitors in the cloud. The, I, so I'm not so sure that they've got this monopolistic power out there that, that people are concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, there is pretty strong competition in, in the space of retail yeah. and technology. Joe Feldman, thank you so much. Thrilled to have you on here early in an thank Amazon you. day. He is with Telsey Advisory uh, Group. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.